Before I begin today's episode, I'd like to apologise if the audio seems to have taken a drop in quality. It's near Christmas, and I haven't been able to find time to record with Elias like I normally would. I've tried my best to get the episode as smooth as I possibly can, and hopefully it's not suffered too much. On another note, as always, I'd like to remind my listeners that this episode of Outlines contains descriptions of a murder which some may find distressing, so listener discretion is advised. Sometimes, when it comes to writing about unsolved murders, the narrative is an obvious one. The cases I choose to cover seem to have similar hallmarks. A person disappears from their usual haunts, and sooner or later a body is found. Normally, they're discovered some miles away from their home in a remote location. And this is exactly how this case begins. It's a bright morning in late autumn, and Gemma, my research assistant, and I drive out to a remote field a few miles away from Southwold in Suffolk. The location is part of Henham Park, a large piece of land which forms the estate of the Earl of Stradbrook, and nowadays is home to the music festival Latitude. But our case goes back to February of 1989, long before the festival crowds descended, when Henham Park was still just a vast space of remote countryside and farmlands. The afternoon of Saturday the 18th of February, 1989, two friends were out hunting rabbits on the estate when they came across what they first thought to be a dummy. On closer inspection, they realised that they were looking at the body of a woman. The route that Gemma and I drive the day we visit Henham Park takes us for the most of our hour and a half journey along the A12, the arterial heart of Essex and Suffolk, which runs 125 miles from near Canary Wharf in London as far as Lowestoft on the Suffolk coast. As we pull up on the small road which leads to Henham Quarry, just off of the A12, I get a picture on my phone. It's from the Suffolk Police's website, a colour photo taken in 2014, and shows a slightly blurred image of a field fenced with barbed wire, which takes up the front of the shot, and countryside as far as the eye can see, punctuated with a single telegraph pole, its wires stretching out until it becomes lost in the whiteness of the sky. We stand beside Gemma's van, and we're almost exactly there, by the side of a small road which serves the quarry and links with the country lanes that make up so much of the English countryside. It's a beautiful, bright day, not too cold, and the trees are losing their autumn leaves. I look at the photo, get my bearing, and stand where a police cameraman stood just a few years before. This is the exact location where the murdered body of 31-year-old Jeanette Kempton from Brixton in London was found. She had disappeared from Brixton just over two weeks earlier, on the 2nd of February 1989, some time after 7.15 in the evening. And as far as I can gather, she had no connection to the area of Suffolk where she would be found. Sometimes, when I research a case, I feel a strong link between a victim and the place where they are discovered. It's difficult to describe, but even if they have no apparent ties to the area, they somehow feel connected. But this isn't the case with Jean Kempton. As far as I can gather, she lived all of her 31 years in London. Reading about her, she feels like a city woman. There is no link between her and the remote spot of land where she was found. And this throws me. You'll find that Jean's case feels disparate. 
like it's missing key pieces of the story. And I think that's why it's taken me so long to formulate this episode. There is no linear narrative. Just a woman who went missing in London and who was found 118 miles away from their home in a place they had no connection to, killed by a person whose identity is still a mystery. I'm Jess Carter, and this is The Outlines Podcast. Jeanette Linda Martin, known as Jean to her friends, was born in Fulham, London in 1957, and at the age of 16 she met 27-year-old wholesale greengrocer Paul Kempton. They were married in 1973, and around the same time Jean gave birth to two sons in quick succession. By 1980, Jean and Paul had finalised their divorce, but they remained in close contact for the benefit of their children. After their breakup, they lived together on and off, despite Jean having other boyfriends, and Paul described their relationship as very complex, saying, We still cared for each other, and I hoped we could work on a reconciliation. From neighbours' accounts of Jean's life, it seems as if she was a quiet woman who kept herself to herself in her flat at Traherne Court in Brixton. One neighbour, Barbara Steer, told reporters that Jean wasn't the sort of person to come in for a cup of tea and a chat. She said, I always knew she was around. She'd do her washing on Mondays, and I could hear it from my kitchen. Then, on Sundays, she'd always go down to the Loughborough pub or the White Hart at about 1pm. Another neighbour said, She didn't seem to have many friends around here, and she was always indoors, or I would see her putting out her washing. At the Loughborough, where Jean had been a regular for about ten years, punters echoed her neighbours' sentiments. Everyone knew her, and everyone knew her to be quiet living. Patrick Hamilton, a friend from the Loughborough, said, I knew her extremely well, and she was a very respectable woman. She was the type of person to really look after her kids. She would do anything for them. She adored them. She was a very popular person among everyone in here, she loved a game of pool as well. I can't believe what's happened. She had no cares in the world. Every account I've read paints Jean as a quiet, caring and kind woman, dedicated to her children. But one who also liked a few drinks, perhaps a few too many. After her disappearance on February the 2nd, 1989, it took Paul Kempton a week to report her missing. When asked about this, he said, She sometimes disappeared for a few days after going on drink-inspired benders. She sometimes did that at the weekend, but I'd always know where she was and how she was. I thought that's what she might have done over the weekend, but when it got to Monday and Tuesday, I was starting to get worried. I was concerned because it was totally out of character for her to stay away so long. If she'd gone on a bender... She might have been away over the weekend, but not any longer. She was a very neatly dressed and tidy woman. 
Sometimes she'd even bathed and changed twice a day, but she took none of her clothes. Nothing was touched. The movements of Jean's last known day are well documented, and most of what you're about to hear is taken from a Crime Watch episode, first aired in May of 1989. If you want to see the episode, you can do so on YouTube, and I'll also embed it on my website at theoutlinespodcast.wordpress.com. It's worth seeing to get a feel for the locations both in Brixton and Suffolk. February the 2nd, 1989, started as usual for Jean. It was her ex-husband Paul's day off, and after seeing their two children off to school, the pair left their home in Traherne Court on Ithorne Road and went shopping on Brixton Road. By 12.30 that afternoon, they'd both found their way to the Loughborough Hotel. The Loughborough is a large Victorian building, red brick, with the bottom half and corner work clad in a cream paint. It stands on the corner of a long terrace and is several stories high. Nowadays, it's been converted into a ground floor art gallery with apartments above. But back in the late 80s and early 90s, it had a reputation as a music venue. First soul and funk and then later Latin and African, all taking place in the hotel's ballroom. The downstairs bar where Jean and Paul drank was a gloomy looking affair with faded velvet seats and yellowing paintwork. The two of them played pool that afternoon and were soon joined by a friend of theirs who asked Jean to look after some money for him, about £300, which she kept in her purse. At around 4.30pm, Paul left and promised to return later that evening. Jean and their friend continued drinking until about six when they left the Loughborough to pick up an expensive funeral wreath at the Five Ways Florist just a short walk away. After collecting the wreath, they returned again to the Loughborough and stayed there for an hour while Jean tried to convince the friend to go on to another pub, the Union. Despite her pleas, the friend decided to head for his home and left Jean, whose intention was still to go on to the Union, standing in the street outside the Loughborough. It was 7.15 in the evening, a dark, cold night in early February, and Jean never made it to the Union or any of the other pubs in the area. Paul Kempton, speaking to a reporter at the Loughborough Hotel in the aftermath of Jean's murder, said, We came in here at about 12.30pm and had a few drinks, met some friends and played pool. At about 4.30pm, I decided to take the shopping home and come back to meet her in the public bar later. But that was the last I saw of her. I went home, put the shopping away, had a snooze and left the house again at about 7.25pm. When I got back to the pub, she had gone. All I know after that is hearsay. Everyone in the pub knows her, and they say that she left with a friend. They just went through that door, then went their separate ways, and that was that. Two weeks and two days later, her body was found in a ditch on the edge of that desolate field in Suffolk. When she was discovered, she was missing her coat, a stiletto, her purse with her friend's money inside, 
the funeral wreath she'd picked up that ill-fated day, and jewellery, a ring with an imitation diamond, a sovereign bracelet, a gold 22-carat gate bracelet, and two plain gold rings. An East Anglian Daily Times article from February of 2003 stated that she had been beaten on the head severely enough to cause brain damage, though it was thought that her cause of death was strangulation, which had probably taken place a couple of days after her beating. Pathologists reportedly estimated that her body had been left in the ditch up to two weeks before its discovery, and the article also alleged that at the time of her death she had drunk enough alcohol to put her almost four times over the drink-drive limit. So this is the part of the episode where I discuss any leads or suspects. But here, there seems to be very little to go on. There are a few speculative sightings around the area where her body was found, and one strange arrest that only led to the police being successfully sued for £85,000. Let's start in Suffolk, a few days after Jean disappeared. There are no sightings of her at all after she left the Loughborough on the evening of the 2nd of February, and there is very little in the way of leads. What we do know is that three days later, two Suffolk locals noticed a dark-coloured rental van with smoked glass rear windows and an 01 phone number painted on in white. The van was turning down Middle Barn Lane, which I believe is the road on which Jean's body was discovered though it's marked as unnamed on Google Maps, so I can't be sure. There is nothing else reported about this sighting, and it's unclear if police ever identified the van's driver. The second report comes from Leslie Fairs, a farmer who saw a stranger's car drive through Park Farm at 9.30am on the 6th of February. He told Crime Watch, I was mixing up cattle food and heard the car come into the farmyard. I hadn't ever seen the car or the two people in the car before, so I walked out of the building further to get a better view as they disappeared into the distance into the estate. The passenger of that car reportedly bore a resemblance to Jean. Two hours later, at Church Farm, 400 yards away from where her body was discovered, a resident heard screams and the sound of loud music. He went inside to get his wife but by the time she came down, both the screams and the music had stopped. There are no other reports of unknown visitors to the area, and these sightings fit with the police timeline, but there is nothing more concrete, and no one could say for sure that Jean was in either of the vehicles. The only other report I can find which details any progress at all in Jean's case comes from an article in The Independent from 1992 entitled stitched up in a surgical corset. It's the story of Anthony Gilby, a descendant of the founders of Gilby's Gin. Back in 1989, Mr Gilby visited a public toilet in Beckles, which is about nine miles from the spot where Jean was found. While he was using the toilet, two police officers were perched in the rafters above him. A while later, they hammered at his cubicle door. Mr Gilby said, 
At first I thought it was rag week. They were wearing the sort of shoes one's grandchildren wear. He meant trainers. Anthony was arrested and accused of gross indecency and conduct likely to cause a breach of peace. The reason turned out to be that he'd recently had two operations for cancer of the bladder, which meant he was required to spend longer in a toilet than the average person. Compounding this was the surgical stockings he'd been ordered to wear for thrombosis in his legs, which he kept in place with a corset. Anthony Gilby says the officers tried to force him to sign a document admitting to various indecencies, and he refused. Just when he was beginning to think that somebody would see sense and release him, he said that a new police officer came into his cell. Mr Gilby described the officer as... He had a suit three sizes too tight, but I wasn't in a position to make sartorial judgments. Then he said, I'm arresting you on suspicion of the murder of Jeanette Kempton. While Anthony Gilby did live near to that unnamed road beside which Jean had been found, there was nothing at all to link him to her murder, and the charge was soon dropped. It's unclear why they thought that Anthony Gilby might have committed Jean's murder, but as he told the reporter in The Independent, I know what they do to minorities. They give them a bloody good kicking. What happens to middle-class people is they bring two people over from the murder squad and arrest you for murder, and it frightens the bloody life out of you. As you've heard, there is very little to go on when trying to piece together what happened to Jean after she left the Loughborough at 7.15 that evening of the 2nd of February 1989. From the information I can find, it appears as if police believe that she was beaten about the head shortly after her disappearance that day, and that she was kept somewhere, or became incapacitated until her strangulation probably two days later. Given the items missing from Jean's person, it appears as if the motive was robbery, but as far as I can tell, they have never been identified as resold, and there is no trace of her coat, shoe or shoes, or that funeral wreath she was carrying. Whatever happened to her, if she was beaten in the street, the wreath was not left there. Someone concealed it, as they probably did her. There were no real suspects, Reports indicate that while her ex-husband Paul was questioned extensively as to whether this was a domestic incident, he was thoroughly ruled out of their inquiries. I'd normally say that waiting a week to report someone missing is a suspicious sign, but given Jean's propensity to disappear for days at a time, it seems likely that it just took him longer to realise that something was wrong than it would in the usual circumstances. Jean had no links to the area where she was found, She'd lived in London all her life, and so it seems likely that it would have been her killer who knew where he wanted to leave her, that she was taken out of London, perhaps whilst still alive, and driven down the A12 as far as that little unnamed road, and it was there that she was strangled and left to be found a couple of weeks later. So here is where the trail goes cold. For almost 30 years, Jean's murderer has remained at large, 
and despite a huge investigation, the closest police got to arresting her killer was a gin air in a corset in a public toilet in Beckles. As with all of the cases I cover, I'll be sure to update you if any new information comes to light. But given the passage of time and the strangeness of the case, it seems unlikely to do so without someone coming forward with new information. Before I go, I'd like to say thank you to all of those listeners who have stuck with Outlines over the last couple of months of silence. I don't know yet when the next episode will be released, but I'll get it to you as soon as I can. I have a few longer form cases planned and a collaboration in the pipeline, so there's plenty to look out for in the new year. My thanks to my newest patron, MJ Macadini, and to those of you who have made one-off donations via PayPal. I'd also like to say how much I appreciate every one of you who has listened to the show over the past year. When I released the first episode last December, I had no idea it would take off like it did, and that a year on I'd have forged friendships and found common ground with so many people. It's been a really great experience and I'm excited to grow the show and continue to bring you coverage of some of the lesser-known unsolved cases from around the UK. This episode of Outlines was researched, written, performed and produced by Jess Carter, with additional input from Gemma Frost. The music was composed by Elias Hardy.